Space fans, and welcome to the Supercluster Podcast. We are here in a new year in the distant future of 2022. I am your space friend, Jamie Carrero. I'm here with my space friend, Robin Seamangle, and also the assistant managing editor of NASA Spaceflight, Chris Gebhardt. Say hi, everybody. Hey. Hello. It's 2022. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we are no longer year. the dominant species on the planet. <laughs> and the coronavirus has infected a majority of the planet, or is about to. Yeah, and uh, we're we're happy that you're listening. We're happy to be with Chris and Jamie here. We're mostly healthy. We've been through quite an ordeal these last few months, and by why by we I mean the human race. Yeah, and uh, we're all happy to be back in this new year. We're looking ahead. We're thinking positive. Uh, as we usual. did get as the human race. We did get a nice Christmas gift in the form yes. of the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which I'm sure everyone is excited about. That's yes. uh, we'll, yes, we'll be talking we about that today. But first, Robin, I think you've got some uh, a few news updates for us. Yes, and as everyone knows, right before the new year, Supercluster launched version three of the Supercluster app, which is the ISS traffic dashboard, the astronaut database, and our OG launch tracker. And we've incorporated stories uh, and features into the app. We are incorporating shop items and new kinds of notifications and, you know, new fixes here and there, things that fans email us asking for. One of those was stories. So yeah, we have a lot of new users and we welcome you. And we do take this opportunity on the podcast to highlight a couple of the launches coming up that we're paying attention to. We have Transporter 3 coming up tomorrow. Weather is looking to be holding so far. Uh, Liftoff is at 1025 AM from Cape Canaveral. And this mission is an absolute, like, I called it a clown car on Twitter yesterday. It is dozens of satellites, microsatellites and nanosatellites uh, for various customers. Argentina, Brazil, Israel, I think the Netherlands and the Ukraine have a payload on there. It's SpaceX's third dedicated rideshare mission, and it's gun- going to a sun-synchronous orbit. So we're really excited about that. Jenny and Eric will be covering the mission for us at Cape Canaveral. Uh, We are also watching Virgin Orbit, uh, a good friends of ours and partners of ours. And they recently visited New York City in Times Square. And I think they, I I don't know which model they had, but they did have a a launcher one laid out there right in the middle of Times Square for everyone to see. It was really cool. Uh, We sent Jack, who's an incredible photographer on the Grand Army Supercluster team, ran up to Times Square and snapped some really great photos. And those are on our Instagram account and our Twitter account. So we're wishing the best to Virgin Orbit for going public. And hopefully we'll launch their second successful commercial mission tomorrow. I also wanted to just point out that on that transporter mission for nano satellite, exactly how small that can be, that's classified as anything between one and 10 kilograms. So like between two and 22 pounds, more or less. So we're talking really small things going into space. Yeah, really, really tiny electronics. And, you know, electronics are getting smaller and smaller. And uh, it is allowing, as we all know here, it's a price per pound to go to space. It's really expensive. So microtechnology is very helpful in doing some sorts of research in space. And our last one that we're watching for the next week is Astra, who will be launching for the first time from Cape Canaveral. We're really excited for them. On another level, we wanted to do a launch poster for Astra celebrating that launch, but I think we're going to do a second one considering the uh, COVID situation. And we're also thinking uh, on the content side of 
potentially doing one for the space launch system. So it could be a really fun year for Cape Canaveral and seeing a lot of new rockets lifting off from the, the space coast. And yeah, I think that uh, that covers it for the next week of launches. One thing we've been really excited about here almost on a daily basis is the James Webb Space Telescope mission. I think if you have a space friend, if you're a space person, that person and you were busy on Christmas morning watching the live stream and it was something to behold. And I think we're past something like 85, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, 80 or 85% of the risk associated with the mission. All the remaining risk is routine spacecraft stuff that we experience with almost every kind of uh, satellite payload. And on that note, I'm going to w- welcome Chris Gebhardt to the show again. And he's got a story to tell because he was one of the few journalists from around the world who was down at French Guiana for liftoff. And I can't imagine the pucker factor there. <laughs> well, yeah, it was fascinating. It it really was. It was my first time being in French Guiana and, you know, to be able to travel for such an important mission when, you know, the eyes of the spaceflight world and because it was Christmas, I think the, the eyes of everyone who happened to be in the room with a spaceflight, you know, person right. that morning also got to also got to witness it. And yeah, be, being one of 20 reporters in the world who got to go was it was incredible there's so much to unpack from the entire trip uh, i'm honestly throw your questions at me because i don't i don't really know where to begin <laughs> and let me start with uh i think i want to start with planning because how did the oh yeah not getting too much into the weeds on the because i know you have to work with a lot of different parties on this but like booking the tickets and stuff like how did did you go through another country to get there did you go directly how did that happen yeah, so the really the only way, unless you're on charter flights, mm-hmm. to get there is you have to go to Paris, and you then change airports in Paris from Charles de Gaulle to Orly, mm-hmm. and then from Orly you fly back across the Atlantic to to Cayenne in French Guiana, and then from there it's about an hour long drive to Kourou and to the spaceport there. So uh, b- booking flights is Basically, to get across the Atlantic for for me, it, I, I sort of kept it in the same airline family. So between right. Delta and Air France, but you couldn't just book it like in one go on one website. So like Delta were the flights across the Atlantic to to and from Paris, and then Air France were the flights to and from French Guiana. And as everything moved, basically. Basically, this is what happened. It, it, it was so wonderfully like a movie. The very first time I got done planning all of this and got everything booked and went, awesome, it's booked. Bing! <laughs> In came the notification that it had slipped from the 18th oh, to the 22nd. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I mean, in like a movie, that's exactly how it happened. Um, so, So then the trick sort of becomes, well you have to first change the Air France flights to and from Cayenne Mm -hmm. before you can change the Delta flights to and from the the United States because the way Ariane Spas did it is there were very strict flights of the ones that you had to be on. And the timing of when you would land in Paris 
And when your connect, quote unquote, connecting flight would be from another airport, there just wasn't enough time to get across the city. So it kind of forced you to stay a day in Paris. But in order to make all of that happen, you had to change the middle legs of the entire trip first before you could change the beginning and the ending legs of it. It was it was really interesting. A logistical nightmare. A logistical nightmare. Just wow. to make this clear to everybody about the geography that's at play here, Ghana Space Center, French Ghana itself, it's on the northeast area of South America. So Chris had to go much farther, like thousands of miles farther to get to Paris yes. versus going from Florida to French Guiana. So the much longer leg of the trip was the weird, like technical legal yes. requirement leg of the trip, a distance of likely 2000 miles. So more. that's when, okay. So that's when they lost me. Cause you know, originally Jamie and I both a couple of years ago, we're talking about going down there and shooting video of the launch from the jungle. And we had talked about it for a while and, you know, COVID and everything else. And I think when I talked to some folks about coming down there, they opened with, yeah, you're going to have to go to Paris first and drive across the city. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm good. Yeah. I think and I'll leave this to uh, the your better minds. <laughs> In a non-COVID world, I, I would have jumped through the hoops. I've, got, I've gone to some rather unusual corners of the world. But, but speaking of unusual corners of the world, Chris, I, I want you to paint a picture for us of exactly what this place is. Because this is not like Cape Canaveral, where there's huge cities right next door and everything. Karoo is, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is, is sort of like a little tiny city slash town amidst a not very populated semi wilderness so that's this, a good way to put it yeah, yeah like this environment good, of a Jamie. launch site is unusual to describe what that was like just the location yeah so i mean it is it is the amazon rainforest is Literally. where this is so you know there, there's very little seasonal variation to to the temperature to the humidity it was very much like the most intense Florida summer you've ever experienced for for me and that was just sort of that's just what it was uh, every single day so you know you land in Cayenne and then it's an hour drive to Crew which you said is you know it's it's a city town sort of like small smallish town USA in that regard in terms of like population size and you know it's primarily there to support the space center and to support the Ghana space center which is right there so you know, you, you just sort of you're in the jungle, in the jungle, in the jungle, and then all of a sudden you're at your hotel. And then they, you know, from your hotel to the spaceport, you're you get on a bus and then they're they're taking you over to the launch center, which is only like five kilometers away. So very, very close to, to crew and to the hotel for the entrance. And, you know, you're passing, you know, pretty high and steep hills and, and cliffs and stuff that all of the communication towers are mounted on that sort of rise up out of this thick jungle. And then all of a sudden, you just turn a corner, and there's the mock-up of the Ariane Five, and there's the entrance to the space center, and <laughs> you're there. It's, and it's so it's so like the good version of James Bond villain, you know? It's so <laughs> yeah. like, like yeah, steep in the jungle, we've hidden our spaceport, except that it's for the good of all humanity and not to like <laughs> steal all the gold in Fort Knox. Exactly, exactly. But then the other thing that, you know, if you're familiar with sort of the, uh, in the United States, if you're familiar with Starbase in Texas, or the Kennedy Space Center, or uh, Wallops, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport in Virginia, right, and, and, and you can see it too at Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, you know, where you're, you're so used to the terrain being 
wide open for miles and miles. Or, you know, like in Vandenberg's case, it's the mountains that hide your view of the pads, right? Or the fog, depending on the day. But in French Guiana, it's not the hills. It's the sheer thickness of the jungle. So like you can see the tops from the from the control center, which is 12 miles from the Ariane 5 launch pad. You can see the tops of the lightning protection towers and the the almost tip, tip top of the Ariane 5 service tower that rolls out with the vehicle. But you can't actually see the rocket from the primary viewing location. So that was an interesting thing is that if you wanted to be able to stream the launch, which is what we wanted to do. When, and we were the only broadcaster from the media side that was that was there for the liftoff side of things. I bet some people canceled. I'm sure some networks canceled. Uh, you know, I'm not sure the only... I, I know of a couple who canceled that were not major networks mm-hmm. just when the slip moved it more toward Christmas time. Right. For the first time when it moved over toward, toward the 22nd. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was very interesting because you had to be further back. There was a closer viewing site that had a view of the pad, but there's no direct line of sight to sell signals or Wi-Fi or anything like that out there. Oh, so you were wow. kind of limited depending on what you wanted to do for your coverage. So you were stuck by either having Wi-Fi or not seeing the rocket at all. Yeah. And, and, you know, but, but, but in a way it kind of, it was kind of neat, right? Because you got the uh, sort of immersive experience if you watched from the control center, because you had to look through the jungle to see this thing and see where it was. And one of the, one of the interesting things that just to me, because I know Rob, you know, Robin, uh, you, myself and some others from media days, including our friend Thad, always used to joke about the security at Kennedy Space Center being (laughs) the the alligators and everything. Lots of things that can kill you out there. Yeah, but yeah. then down there, one of the things that we were told as we as we were going around is, you know, they they said, you know, like, hey, like, it, when you get out, if you're when you're at the pad and you're outside, like, just be aware, jaguar sightings have taken place the last what? few weeks. Yeah, like in and around the Ariane Five pad. So that was that was a pretty cool <laughs> warning. Like, watch out for the jaguars. Did, did <laughs> you incidentally? I mean, given that you were, you know, a, a few hundred miles north of the river and in the jungle, did you get to see any interesting wildlife? A bunch of parrots and toucans. I'll but, take that. That's, but that, how, that's that exotic was, for me. Yeah. Parrots are pretty exotic yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. The first lunch that we had on what was lovingly referred to as L-3 Take 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> uh-huh. um, <laughs> because uh, basically when we landed and the day that we got there on on the 22nd, I believe, which was the original, or 21st, sorry, on the 21st, which was the original L- Launch-3 minus day point is when they delayed from the 24th to the 25th so we kind of had an extra day three in there and yeah that first lunch that we had that day we were outside a couple of us were outside talking and all of a sudden the tree just started like vibrating and squawking and like 50 small little green parrots just blew out of it oh (laughs) Oh, sorry it didn't mean to disturb yeah That's great. Yeah, I, I, if I had gone down there, I would have had to spend another two weeks just to explore the environment around. I want to go back badly. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's I, a really nice part of the world. Yeah. Before we continue on James Webb, like that spaceport, Chris, did you feel a heavy military presence there? No more than I felt at the U.S. spaceports. Okay. The, you know, just where some of the barricades went, and by barricades, I mean security checkpoints Mm -hmm. in in that case, where some of them were, were different, but the process was very similar. Like, you know, media had to have a a person with a badge that allows them to escort media 
you know, okay, that makes sense yeah. to different places, but you didn't feel the presence any differently, I would say, but you were very aware, like you are at Kennedy and the Cape, that they were there, right? Like there were security right. patrol helicopters that were up and going around the area to make sure that the airspace were clear, was clear. The only difference in French Guiana is that it's, it's the French military who mm-hmm. patrols the sea and land assets. So members of the French military are who provided those particular assets and and protection. And then it was the Paris Fire Brigade is actually the fire department. So uh, there are basically the Paris two fire th- department sent yep. Yep. that's amazing. Yep. And so it, is there so like it, a it's permanent basically it's two, station? Yeah. yeah, there is a permanent station of the Paris Fire Brigade there. And it's t- either two or three year rotations that people that's do. That's really, really cool. Um Kennedy has their own Fire yes. station and fire department, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. And their own police and security force, which assists in some. So like it, it was sort of like all the same pieces were there, but the players were a little bit different. Right. right. But it's not like you were like, oh, my God, the military's here. Like, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> I did. Despite now, the fact that I think in our broadcast, just from pure coincidence, the way our camera was angled, just all of a sudden a military helicopter just rose directly into frame <laughs> and then flew off at about 30 minutes before liftoff. And it was like, oh. That was unplanned. That's a, that was, good that was sneaky helicopters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a free $50 million shot in a Hollywood movie. Right? Right? Uh, yeah, totally. exactly. <laughs> Just take it. One question I had about the spaceport and sort of like the visitor aspect of the spaceport now, mm-hmm. whenever there's a big launch at Kennedy, let's say Falcon Heavy, for instance, mm-hmm. you'll see NASA there hyping up whatever they're doing or in this case, when you when you were at the spaceport, what were they hyping about the spaceport's future and the Ariane rocket? Were there oh, you know what I mean? Was there kind of yeah. that kind of their, that kind of atmosphere? So I I, I want to answer that in two ways because that sort of self promotion that you talked about, where you'll you'll see the occasional billboard right for right, maybe right. a particular mission, yeah. um, but more so you'll just see billboards for like the space center in general, the flagpoles. And every place around in Cayenne and in and in Karoo were decorated with banners about the James Webb Telescope oh, and wow, okay. about that mission mm-hmm. and seeing, you know, unlocking the unfolding the future, you know, in in both French and English. And it was, you know, so there was there's a huge. Now I can only speak to that for James Webb. I I did not remember when I was with anyone who was there to ask if that is something they do for every mission. Yeah. That's, I there's like an so. only, I, I, I wouldn't is, think so, but like there, yeah. there, there was a very big presence. So I, uh, you know, I, I'd be curious going back what, what they would do, but, but to, to your actual question there, Robin, internally, there was a lot of discussion about the upcoming Ariane six vehicle, which if the current schedule holds, will take its debut flight later this year, second half of 2022 as well as the debut flight for the upgraded Vega C rocket from Ion's boss, that first flight currently scheduled for the April-ish timeframe okay. uh, of this year. And those are two very, 
important additions to the Ariane Spas fleet of vehicles, Ariane 6 primarily taking over for Ariane 5, which currently has five more missions remaining. Four will fly this year. All of them are dual passenger geostationary transfer orbit telecommunications satellites. And then the fifth and final Ariane flight in 2023 will be the JUICE mission of the European Space Agency to Jupiter's icy moons. The what now? Uh, it's called the juice, juice, the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a juice-powered rocket. It's, just yeah. fruit. It's, it's a it's, fruit that when you squeeze it, kerosene yeah. comes out. And, then, no. and, and by Love coincidence, it. that will be Ariane 5's final flight. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it will retire in style with the Jupiter yeah. mission there. And Ariane 6 will take over, but uh, the, the goal is to have Ariane 6 flying, at least having taken its first flight before the full transition takes place. Before they um, fully retire the other one, yeah. Exactly, yeah. and there are about three of the regular Vega rockets, Vega being their small solid rocket vehicle. The first three stages of Vega are solid rockets, and the upper stage is restartable liquid-fueled. But the main reason Vega got an upgrade, too, is because they wanted a lot of commonality, um, and as much commonality as they could have to reduce cost for the new systems. So mm -hmm. the first stage solid rocket booster or solid rocket motor that that is the first stage of the Vega C rocket, the P120, will now be the side-mounted solid rocket motors on the Ariane 6 as well. So uh, they'll get more flight history, they'll get more commonality, yeah. and instead of having to only produce two, you know, four or five, you know, rocket motors for a Vega vehicle and then totally different ones for Ariane 5, they can now produce all of them on the same production line and simplify things. Quite it's also a reduction of risk too. Oh, 100%. Because the more you can fly a system, the more data you get on it. Now, the downside is, is that if they were, if the first stage were ever to have a problem similar to how Vega failed on second stage flight a couple of years ago, where like the forward dome of the rocket motor just gave way. Right and the vehicle was destroyed, you would now have a commonality problem between your vehicles. But again, that can be reduced by flying the vehicle more and standardizing the, um, the production process as well. Yeah, manufacturing process is important, as we've learned with SpaceX. <laughs> yeah. And to see you know, uh, ind other industry leaders sort of adopting that philosophy is really important. I think finding that commonality and that uniform system for your, your parts, for your rockets, especially the next line in that family it reduced costs reduced risk flying proven hardware is always reducing risk so yeah i'm excited to see Ariane 6 fly it's gonna be exciting one question i was gonna ask you chris what is the next so you mentioned the the juice mission any uh, other which, which by the way j just to highlight that mission i was joking about it yeah. it is actually part of our search for maybe life even in our own solar system like it, you know it's it's one of the many steps in investigating these moons mm -hmm. several of which we think might have oceans of water underneath layers of ice which right. might have little you know alien fishes Tiny and stuff. little fishies yeah, yeah. This, and, this, and the, the mission one... won't directly discover that yeah. but it's on the path it's part of a big yeah. foundation that's being built right now and that's a good transition into what i wanted to talk about with web because it's yeah. it's on the way to l2 right now um yes the origami Holy is moly. done right yeah the yes. space origami is done we've unfolded all the parts i am yep. slightly less sweating on my yeah. out of oh. every orifice about this telescope because we've gotten past the launch and the unfolding but what's next in this in the steps 
<laughs> oh gosh, I'm glad you asked. Less it panicking. Way. Less panicking. <laughs> uh, l- less panicking, but not no panicking. Right. Um, so the major thing that remains is a couple of different things. One is getting the cryo cooler to actually drive the temperature of the instruments down from roughly the 50 degree Kelvin mark that the sun shield will be able to do passively. Uh, but that's all it's able to do because of this because it's still in proximity to the sun, right? It's still it's at, it's basically traveling with us around the sun. But that cryocooler then needs to get it from 50 degrees Kelvin down to 6 degrees Kelvin. And that is mandatory in order for Webb to be able to see the infrared wavelengths that it needs to be able to see properly. Right. Uh, yeah, just, gotta, just, to, sorry, yeah. just, just to explain that a little bit more, the instruments need to be both extraordinarily sensitive and they need to see in the infrared part of the spectrum in order to see all the way across the universe the way we want to. The problem is that heat yeah. is in the infrared spectrum. So <laughs> yeah. that's why it needs to be so cold is any amount of heat would be like shining a huge flashlight right into the camera. You wouldn't right. see anything. So they need to be so dark both from a darkness in the way we think of it but from a darkness of cold uh, Mm -hmm. because of the way the infrared light works and this is one of the exact reasons why when people ask the question well wait a minute like why did we have to launch it why couldn't we just put it on top of a mountain you would never be a you would never be able to cool it down right enough we need space and you would and you would never be able to then and then it would have to look through thermal radiation in the atmosphere right I, yeah. you, this is why it had to be in space yeah and you've also got to, just to, to highlight how crazy this is you have to you're in the the coldness of space which is already really really cold then you have a giant sun shield blocking out all of the light from the sun and then on top of that you need a super diesel refrigerant yeah. system mm-hmm. on top of it and that that's what we're saying is the next thing they have to turn on yeah. and here's why we say less panicking but not no panicking the cryo cooler was one of the things they could not test in its entirety on the ground uh, they were able to oh, test. Why, why well, yeah, because you need yes, we needed because... it to be super cold, right? Oh, because no. it'll never be in the conditions. Or no, it's not that not? actually. They were able because we have uh, vacuum chambers where we can get the temperatures really, really cold, right? In there, and and we can test all of that stuff. It's because half of it is on the spacecraft bus, and half of it is on the deployable structures. But you could never fully unfold web inside of the places on Earth where we could cool it down and actually take it through all of those steps. Right. So they were never able, they could test the part on the bus and they could test the part on the deployable structures independent of one another. But they could never test them together because you there's you couldn't do it. We do not Earth. have a large enough, cold enough chamber on Earth. Right. And, and the complex way of how the sun shield had to deploy, you couldn't do that in the vacuum chambers, right? right, and you, so, right. You could, so it was, it, yeah, it was just, it was fascinating, but you just couldn't do that. And, and, and how Webb's assembly process worked against them, how the final assembly process worked against them in that ability as well. So, I mean, like, don't, no, don't get me wrong, both parts of it have been tested, but 
never together. So oh, well, this, this is, of course, the the never ending fear of things we didn't even know we were assuming. Like of web, yes, yeah, like um, yeah. of course, <laughs> no. Well, I'm just saying. Also, of all of of, I mean, science in general, but space science in particular, mm-hmm. is they have to be so sensitive to what you just pointed out. Like, yeah, yeah, we know this part and this part, and we know physics and we know math, but there's still the entirety of things that we might not even know we were assuming. Exactly because, and here's why while the sun shield was a huge moment where everyone was really holding their breath, right? And, and the sun shield deployment went absolutely, per- I mean, perfectly. I mean, perfectly. I mean, almost shockingly perfectly. Even the team was surprised. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Kind of any... like the efficiency of that Ariane 5, by the way. But we'll Oh get my to gosh, that. we got a lot to talk about with both yeah. of those things. Yeah, we'll get but, to that next. But, but, you know, the sun shield deployment, they were actually able to test that multiple times on the ground because we know how to like fake with police systems microgravity right so we actually were able northrop grumman was able to deploy that sun shield multiple times and run through the sequences and make sure that nothing would get snagged make sure they understood worst case scenarios make sure they understood what the data would be telling them on different types of conditions so they really knew what they were looking at and then talking with them last week exactly what you were saying robin like they were i mean they they were just saying like they kept watching everything and it was just coming back baseline nominal it's crazy <laughs> and they were just they were so impressed and like well, the extra data they needed right we're not jinxing <laughs> anything yeah like, at the control panel like do we have this on demonstration mode like what's <laughs> happening <laughs> kind of one thing uh, i wanted to add a note to i visited james watt twice before launch one was during power on it was right before the pandemic like a week or two before the outbreak in la and uh, we visited right a couple days before encapsulation uh, over the summer. You see these, because I had asked specifically about this um, when I was there, there was were these counterweights all around the spacecraft. I was like, oh, what is that for? They're trying to simulate the zero G as best they can in terms of weight balance. And it's literally, they have to counterbalance it with like bags of sand or metal or um, different plates. I think this in particular were 10, 20 pound plates. They were stacking on top of each other to counterbalance the spacecraft. And it's such an interesting way of, I want to say rudimentary, but it's not, but it's a a very cheap way to um, measure and counterbalance gravity when you're building a spacecraft. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing is that for all its complexity in mechanism and the depth of physics to truly understand what gravity is and all that kind of, you know, gravitational fields, at its heart, it's a force. And so if you want to feel like how much you would weigh on the moon, you can just pull up on yourself with that amount so that you're one sixth, you know, being pulled down. And of course, you won't feel that in every part of your body, but on a point, sort of a point basis, like in one point of something, we can directly negate gravity. Exactly. Well, because that's exactly how they used to train the and how they will have to again, the lunar astronauts. Right, right is yeah. when you have pulleys and harnesses so they can get used to what it feels like when you only weigh a sixth of what you normally do. <laughs> yeah. Now let's talk about the RN5 insertion. Well, actually, can can we talk? I want to finish one quick thing about James Webb first. Because what remains, I think, is the question in terms of the the failure risks, right? Yes. So the other thing in aside aside from the cryo cooler and getting it cooled down is now. Every single one of those 18 mirror segments 
of those that form the big primary gold mirror, that iconic mirror now, all of those have little motors. Just one, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and they and I mean, these motors have redundancy, like in terms of electrical pathways and everything like that. But these motors are capable of moving like sub millimeter level accuracy and movements. Each one of these little individual mirrors now has to be tuned and aligned perfectly. So that's the other major thing that's coming up for web before the instruments can start their calibration periods. And all of this will take about five and a half months. So we really should not expect first images or anything from web until the July or August timeframe in yeah, reality. Summertime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it cannot yeah. be overemphasized the level of precision we were talking about yeah. because these mirrors have to act as one mirror. So right. if you th- think about taking that sorry, how many segments are there? 18. It's uh, four, 18. So take 18 very large surfaces and yeah. then align them uh, just just to make the metaphor, they won't be perfectly flat, but just imagine trying to align them perfectly flat. So perfectly flat that if you looked at them in the mirror, you wouldn't see the seams. Like they're trying to do that with tiny motors to focus light coming from across the entire universe. No big deal. Exactly. Just light from the beginning yeah. of time. But here's the other point now to re- talk about the remaining risk. Everything that we talked about prior to launch and the single points of failure for web, all the ones that can be retired and put behind us have been. Right. All the, the small amount that remain, I believe it's like 47 remain, are with it for the entirety of its life. So there are no more ones that we can get rid of. These are oh, just ones we now have to live with because risk. they're just uh, yeah. operational details. Yeah. Like, because when say, you it's aimed... like a, t- a tire on a car with no spare. You can, exactly. once it's working, it has to keep working or else you ain't driving anywhere. Exactly. Because when they re aim web, at various things, you might need to tweak those mirrors again, right? right? You might have to do all these little things that cryo cooler has to keep working and everything like that. So that's the reality of web now. Everything that can be put behind us has been. Now we live with the rest of them for the duration that this thing is operational, which what a sentence to say, because well, I think if anyone thought, now. exactly because man, if anything was going to go wrong, I think a lot of people were assuming it was the sun shield, which literally carried 75% of the single point failures. Oh, yeah, because all yeah. those pins, yeah. uh, you know, it's difficult to do this on a podcast without showing an image. But just the sheer number of, of like tiny moving parts to the point where you think, is this really necessary? But of course, I trust it is. But all of these tiny little metal things that need to slide in and out perfectly, like the most absurd pup tent in the universe. It's, yeah. it's, it's very impressive. <laughs> I'm now more terrified than I was at the beginning of the podcast. Well, so, let's, let's, so maybe we should go to the happy thing of let's, uh, let's talk about like the, the uh, Aryan the science and optimism. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, one thing we wanted to talk about was the Ariane Five's precision insertion and how it may have preserved enough fuel to significantly extend the life of James Webb. And Chris, during the press conference, I, I heard a number. Was it twenty years? Yeah. So is that a shot uh, in the dark though? Or is that an no, accurate number? No, no, no. That 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 would be an accurate number. So wow. so and I think I think that's a little confusing on, mm-hmm. on the surface. So let's let's yeah, back up and down. talk about why. Because yeah. Web was launched with the understanding that on a on a baseline mission, it would carry enough fuel inside of itself, right, to be able to 
course correct from where the Ariane 5 drops it off, um, do the burn maneuver it needs to when it gets to the Lagrange point two location to actually enter the orbit around L2, the L2 point, and then keep itself there slash reorient itself as needed. And that was based on the baseline mission. We'd have 10 years of propellant left on James Webb. But a couple things can happen to that baseline, right? Your rocket could underperform on the day for some reason, and you now need to use more of that propellant so you have less remaining to actually do the mission, so the number of years you have to do your mission dwindles. Thankfully, that almost never happens. It can, but it almost never does. Mm -hmm. The other way that you can go although usually not to the extent that we saw with the Ariane 5, which is what makes this all the more impressive, is your rocket can overperform and it can be more accurate in where you drop and on where it drops you off than where it is allowed to drop you off. So to put this into simple terms, right? Let's say, let's pretend we've got like a self-driving car, right? And you're in the self-driving car and the self-driving car's accuracy for the destination that it drops you off at. And let's say it is the stop sign at the end of the block, right? Let's say that the accuracy of that is it has to bring you within 10 feet of the stop sign. And then you can get out and you can walk the rest of the way, right? So it's allowed to be 10 feet off in any direction. But the more accurate it is, the less energy you need to exert to get yourself to the stop sign. Well, imagine if it dropped you off, basically it ran over the stop sign and it <laughs> and it and it delivered you right, right on top of it. Yeah. And all you had to do was open your door. That's basically what the Ariane 5 ended up doing. Just an insanely accurate insertion and performance by that vehicle that doubled the amount of propellant that they had left on web. Wow. Uh, than they were expecting. So, so just, they can I mean, use all that for science instead of just getting there. Bingo. And in turn, that sort of loops into another really cool thing is that gives us a mu- that gives us more time to figure out and get a vehicle that can refuel it because they did put a way on there to refuel it, even though they haven't actively really worked on a way to do that because there's not a vehicle that's capable of doing it right now. Well, 10 years from now, there could have been, but 20 years from now, there better be, you know? Yeah. But this, by the way, is one of my absolute favorite things about what space scientists sometimes do. And it makes me think of the Mars sample retrieval mission. Mm-hmm. They set things up for a future that hasn't been invented yet. They write a letter to their future scientists saying, hey, we put a port on it. We, we're going to drop a capsule on it. We're going to do whatever. You invent a way. But they're, le- they're intentionally leaving that door open. I just find that very distinctly inspiring every time If we time don't have a vehicle happens. in 10 years that can refuel james webb i don't know that, that something's would, gone wrong with yeah, starship is the answer wrong. you're looking but you see for what I'm there saying <laughs> is you don't you, they're not just betting on some future thing they're putting the fuel port on like right. that gesture of trust in the advancement of our technology is really great well and you know I, I made the joke about you know like something has gone very wrong with starship which yeah in 10 years if it's not capable of going out there with humans and doing something with it something's gone wrong Right. With oh, well, when I said gone wrong, like, we're I, still, yeah, we're still talking about a starship in ten years. Something's yeah. gone wrong. We need the next thing. <laughs> but there are vehicles that exist today that could be tweaked to do it. And and this is the thing, right? Northrop Grumman has a fleet of mission extension vehicles, robotic servicing vehicles that are under development. This technology is one that is rapidly developing and exists now. So it buys us more time 
to get there. But it should. But what it really should do is it should make the ability to refuel web an inevitability and just a matter of signing the contract to <laughs> do it. You know what awesome. I mean? Like, awesome. That's when, great. When you, That's great yeah. news. Yeah. Yes. Now, never say never. It does require government funding, but you know what I mean by that. We can operate in an optimistic mode because so far, so good on James Webb. So I'm going to stay. Yeah, I'm going to knock wood and stay in the optimistic mode. I, what should we talk about next? Should we talk about well, what it could do? Well, yeah, I think that's a whole other episode. And I think that we've got many months to wait until mm-hmm. unfurling. And we do have a couple articles in the works from some great journalists who are going to be looking at the technology behind web and the science that it's going to explore over the course of its life. There are two other things about being there that if you're interested that I'd, that I'd like to hit really quick, if that's okay. Do it. Yes, please. Yeah. So, you know, aside from like the insane traveling and, and the vaccinations you have to get to, to go to South America there, one of the interesting things, obviously, you know, we were there over Christmas, which is a fairly significant Western holiday if you celebrate it, right, to be gone. Right. And, you know, sort of knowing that, you know, it pushed from the 24th to the 25th. Right. So we were going to be working and that the 24th was going to be a really intense day, you know, day before liftoff. And then the 25th, all your adrenaline is going to be surging. And then if it actually launched, you're you're back at the airport that afternoon and on your flight back to Paris, you know, that that evening. So they decided to do something which I thought was really nice for us. They rented out a restaurant, open air restaurant for us. So gather as safely as possible. Right. And we got to have a traditional like French Christmas dinner, but they didn't separate us. So it was the media who was there, the NASA folks, the Canadian Space Agency folks, the Ariane Space folks and the ESA folks all there together, you know, all the bigwigs from Stefan Israel and Thomas Zerbukin all the way down to other project engineers. And it was just a really nice moment of like camaraderie and just that moment of like that, that what's been given up for this incredible moment. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause they're um, all going to be, they're going to be Catholics down there in French Guiana. So it's, you're, you're definitely in, in a place that cares about the holiday. Yeah. It's uh, not even just Christmas too. I think that it's the holiday season. It's just like yeah. the couple of weeks at the end of December. It's just yeah. a holiday or se- or festive season for many cultures. Oh, absolutely. It's, I'm, yeah, I'm just saying they, that, that, yeah. that part of the world is, is going to be Christmas aware. You know, definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. My family is from next door, Guyana, and it's a very Christmas, very Catholic Christian culture. And the neighboring country, Suriname, Colombia, you'll see the same thing there. So that's oh, fair yeah. to say. And, and Brazil, yeah. And Brazil. And, uh, one thing I wanted to remark, it's the same sentiment as Chris is saying here, is James Webb was an international effort. Oh, yeah. Global. And uh, I think that some some folks saw the half glass empty with it being over the holiday break. But I think the fact that it was on that day and <laughs> at that time got some people who would not have paid attention to pay attention otherwise. I you love I mean? it, honestly. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel for anybody who had to be away from their family. But to be really honest, just... On a human level, I can't imagine anybody felt that bad because right. imagine you work on this and you, anybody in your family is going to know and is going to be proud and is going to yeah. treat it as part of that holiday. I'm I'm really happy Most it was on Christmas. Most of them ended up being with their families yeah. and gotten shared. You know? I mean, like, as much as they wanted to be there, you know, like one of one of the sad things because of COVID and so many of the people that I talked to 
in the run-up to the mission, you know, with them saying, you know, that they had spent, you know, X number of years, you know, some of them over 20 working on this and they don't get to go. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But you know, you but, know that, what? but then on the flip side of that, yeah. there were teams who got there in June and never took a day off until the day that it lifted off. Yeah. You know, I mean, a it, lot of it, dedicated it was incredible. people on the mission. Yeah. And, and that, was, was humanity. that was sort of the last part is, you know, like there was an emotion to the day, right? That was that, like, there was a lot more, I, I felt like for me personally, right? Like there was a lot more like, okay, like now we're two hours away. Oh my <laughs> gosh, now we're an hour and a half. <gasps> yeah. Now we're under one hour. Oh gosh, uh, now we're under 30, you know, like, and it just, and and then of course, like, for, for an Ariane launch, you see everyone rush out onto the balconies, right? All the VIP viewers rush out onto balconies. And where I was, was one balcony above them. So like, I see them all start to rush out and then the PA system activates. And then you hear the launch director and you hear all those normal phrases in French, right? Pay attention to the launch director for the final count. And you start hearing that final countdown from 10 and like the anxiety that you don't know is there peaks. Right. And uh, then yeah. and then the very different thing happens because Ariane launches so differently from other vehicles. The liquid engine ignites at T zero when the clock reaches zero, builds up its thrust up to the seven seconds after the count reaches zero and then lights its solids and lifts off at it's T very plus different seven. process. Yeah. And it looks very it'll look process. wrong if you're not expecting it. Like it, I should mention that. Like it's it's not just different. It looks like it oh looks no. Very it's, different. Not, it's not going, and it, you know. And yeah. it looks wrong even when you know it's supposed to be happening. Okay. Because what happens is they get to zero in the count, they stop talking. You can't see the Vulcan engine igniting. You can't see the exhaust from where we are. It doesn't get high enough at that point in that seven seconds to clear the tree line. So you're just fixated on a viewfinder in a camera going, I need to see solid rockets. Oh my gosh, why haven't the solids lit? Why haven't the... Okay, there they are. There they are. There they are. And I think like I hit that same octave level when I said, oh my God. On the, <laughs> on the live stream, it looks like... So they have a close-up. And it does look like it, they're lighting a light, a giant lighter under the oh mouth gosh. of the rocket. Yeah. It's, like, it's, like a, it's like a sloppy flame. Giant big, you know, barbecue lighter. And just like the sheer no sound suppression right. water ignition and jolt of the solids. And then it's gone. I, yeah. I mean, it's gone. And, and, you know, it, it took about 30 seconds before it disappeared into the cloud deck from for the observers on the ground, which is pretty good for an Ariane 5, actually. Yeah, I know. You, um, there's usually very little visibility. Yeah, it wasn't gone in 10 seconds, so yay. You know, that was actually really good. But when it disappeared, that was about the time from the distance perspective that the sound of the solid rockets reached us. Oh, uh, cool. And so it was gone. I had nothing to track on the camera at that moment. And that's when it hit me. I mean, I was able to stand there and close my eyes and let the sound of the rocket, you know, just wash yeah, over me. That's how you me. watch the launch sometimes, just sometimes, by listening. And, yeah. and that's when I that that's when the emotional dam broke for me. You know, I, I started covering this mission back before it was named, which was controversial. But you know, Wasn't I started NSF's covering NSF's first article, a James Webb article. No, it was a shuttle piece. Uh, um, okay. one, one of the first ones I did was a yet unnamed 
next generation space telescope one but that to me when i lost out of the rocket was when the emotional dam broke for me personally because Mm -hmm. at that point it really just was well what will happen will happen there's nothing we can do it's true you know and just kind of having that moment of like yeah ah, yeah Yeah. it was was oddly relieving in in one way now don't get me wrong the tension and apprehension immediately came back afterward uh but but like that was the moment that i personally broke and and that i needed that that emotional release from it i think something for, for me that felt different and added both to the apprehension but also just the the emotional weight of the whole thing in in all of its aspects both the the nervousness but the hope and the joy and the sort of happiness that humanity did this all together i think the reason is for so long we've been watching these launches where the launch itself is the accomplishment like oh we got yeah. human space flight returned to the us or we got you know this you know we proved that we could land a booster for talking about spacex but in right. this one the launch is the beginning of a multi-decade unknown box of discovery it's the beginning we have this is the start of a story and now we're in the story and that's immensely exciting to me in a way other launches haven't necessarily felt and you know for a slightly different reason but exact same outcome jamie is what i felt from this one is you know like sort of going into it and understanding the ariane 5 which has been around since 1996 by the way and has a very good safety record overall you know like to me, it wasn't really that question of like, oh my gosh, will the Ariane 5 fail? Aside from like, oh, please, let's one of the statistical probabilities not get us on this one. Right. right. There was really no reason to be overly apprehensive about the liftoff itself, which is bizarre because normally the liftoff is the part where, oh, good Lord, if it goes wrong, this is where it goes wrong. Right. And that wasn't the case with Webb either. It, you know, the liftoff was not the most anxiety-inducing right. moment. The riskier of the parts were later. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. that was also a very different feeling to have, as I'm sure everyone held their breath for the 27 minutes it took for <laughs> it to do the launch. Oh, there is. Man, that was something I felt bad about because it wasn't until it lifted off that I was like, oh, wow, I don't think anyone in the media prepared people for how long this is about to take. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I see you in 80 days, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I will say, and I will always be amazed by the recent Mars rovers and the sky crane maneuver and all this stuff. But I will say this, James Webb is still representing so many more wonderful yeah. unknowns. Like when we, we know in a general First sense what's light. on Mars, and the things that we discover with these rovers expand that knowledge from a scientific perspective. It's all really, really great. But we're not going to turn over a rock and see a cosmological formation we never imagined. Do you know what I mean? On Mars. But James Webb, we literally don't know what we're going to see. And that is, again, like it has so much more imagination igniting fuel in it. I think it's a big part of our future in, in terms of SETI in terms of exoplanet discovery and understanding the formations of solar systems and galaxies, I think is something that's quintessential to understanding, you know, if we're building this timeline, how did human life evolve in yeah. our solar system? How do planets and stars right. form? We need we're to understand a lot about that. the setting. We need to understand the makeup of these large bodies and the larger and larger bodies. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of misconception in the media about you'll see a lot of headlines james webb will find aliens that's not exactly that's not the case at all 
<laughs> it could potentially find a thing that could potentially be yeah, from aliens. That could later yeah. be a Atmos- thing. Yeah. Atmosphere, yeah. Atmospheric yeah. sampling and yeah. uh, atmospheric spectroscopy could certainly find the telltale signs of industrialization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, exactly. a bunch of, or a bunch of methane, which mm-hmm. we know, at least we assume, is ephemeral, uh, ephemeral unless generated by living things. It can't be around. So, you know, there's all kinds of things we could find, but it's not going to say... We're going to find a... clues. We're yeah. going to find... <laughs> Really it's not going yeah. to take a picture of an alien on a hoverboard. But, but that being said, it should be, we should remember um, that it can look at parts of our own solar system, which is pretty cool. Well, yeah. And, and that's exactly it, Jamie. Like it, it can look at parts of our own solar system, like, you know, the outer reaches, right? Where like we needed a, re- a telescope that could see these, these very, 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 very cold parts of the spectrum. Right. You know, it's not ideally suited for Planet Nine. It's probably what everyone thought of. <laughs> it's not ideally suited. <laughs> it could, but it's not ideally suited for it. Uh, that would be the Vera Rubin Space te- Telescope. That that would be more instrumental for Planet Nine. But it's got to be able to look very, very close to home, right? Essentially, the house, right, that mm-hmm. is our solar system. And it also has to be able to see back in time to 400 million years after the Big Bang. Yeah. To the moment when the first galaxies and stars were starting to form, potentially even farther, uh, they're estimating is, I, they could I mean, reach a hundred million years after. It, it mm. could. I, I, yeah. I mean, like it. It is. It is a. I mean, it is basically a telescope that is tasked with seeing almost the entirety of time of the universe, and that that is one heck of a feat to be given. <laughs> That's mind-boggling. I think one thing I want to personally explore is all the proposals that are coming in and different ways to use the telescope. I I heard that the James Webb project is going to be the most diverse selection of different kinds of sciences that are going to be explored using the telescope. Researchers and astrophysicists from around the world, we're going to start exploring those proposals throughout the year, you know, until full deployment. We're also going to be looking, trying to figure out what proposals were not accepted. I I always think that's a tall part of the story, too. Yeah. But it should be emphasized that it's it's wide open, by the way. They accept proposals from literally any scientist who thinks they have a good use. And then a committee evaluates it and grants them time as they see fit. Right. And it's it's safe to assume, Chris, that with this extension, that many more scientists are going to get their projects through because of the time extension. Right. I mean, oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it allows additional projects. I mean, in 10 more years of observation, I mean, my, my, I mean, look at what Hubble has found in, right. in the 30 some odd years that it's been up there. I mean, oh, it even just deep field. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like this. Oh, God. It, it, yeah. All right. I will. I will just brief, just because it blows my mind. I'll briefly explain if, if people yeah. aren't familiar. At one point, they decided, well, what if we just point Hubble towards a dark part of the sky, but leave it exposing for a really long time to see what's there? And they discovered that it was like super densely packed with a billion with galaxies. galaxies. <laughs> yeah. 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 So they're like, oh god. So any dark part of the sky is actually not empty more, at all. More. Ga- yeah. More. And more unfolded a whole new era of thinking. I think it's a great way to end the podcast by mentioning Hubble and all that Hubble has given us. A lot of people do say that, you know, Webb is the successor to Hubble. I don't really see it that way. Uh, Hubble is going to continue on doing its job for at least the next few years. And the images that we get from Hubble, people really need to understand this. The images that we're getting from Hubble do not expect that from Webb. Webb is no. a completely yep. different spectrum. It's a completely different 
orientation of light and the way that we're going to be looking at images. So we're Hubble gives us eye candy and science. Webb is going to give us mind bending science in, in very raw form. And I don't think people are going to be used to that. Well, it will. I mean, I guess just just to be clear, it will give us visual imagery by right. shift. We'll shift the light from mm-hmm. infrared into our visual spectrum. Right. But the results of that may or may not be the, yeah. the same it's kind of. It's not going to be the works you know, of art that you were. Well, but used what's to be but, but what's fascinating, and this is what you were going to, Robin, is that it's not a replacement for Hubble by any stretch of the imagination. No. And people involved will correct you with that. I think too. they could coexist. But, but, <laughs> well, it's but different spectrums the of light. They're, they're, it's, they're yeah. built to coexist. Right. The, the the problem sort of became it took so long from a technical standpoint before Webb was really ready to launch that we're sort of at the end of Hubble's lifetime, which was never the intention. They, right. they were designed to coexist for long periods of time mm-hmm. for Hubble to look at the same thing that Webb looked at, but in different parts of the spectrum, which right. give you different pieces of information. And then after they're done looking at it, you aim the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and now you've got a completely different part of the spectrum. They're all meant to work. The great observatories are all meant to work together and not replace oh, yeah. one another. A simple way to put it is, you know, we've got James Webb up there. We'll assume everything goes super well, knock wood. But if the next day Hubble dies, we would still, as as a humanity, come up with a replacement for Hubble, even though James Webb exists. Because and I think there's a lot of yeah. different I proposals. God, out we can there. say we still have, we would at yeah. least have Webb at that point. Like oh, now, absolutely. I think that's part of why you know, like, yes, the day we lose Hubble is going to be bad from a science perspective, but like, at least we're not dead in the water, you know, oh, totally, with a lot totally. of it, you know, we've got web up there now. And that is, and that is the important lesson here is that even though we just launched web and we still have, you know, years and years of science, there's a bunch of other telescope ideas and observatory ideas out there, billions of dollars, more massive than web, because like we said earlier, all these instruments and observatories are part of a, a larger foundation. There's no one telescope that's going to discover aliens or discover an exoplanet that we can live on. It's it's going to be like 20 telescopes working across two decades and across multiple disciplines yes. that make those big discoveries. It's never going to be the one thing. And it's really important that each step is taken carefully. And I think Webb has really made us all really anxious, but it's reminded us how important and expensive this can be <laughs> and the the profound discoveries that can be made with it. So on that note, yeah. Chris, thank you for being on the pod to share your journey down the French Guiana. When I, like I said, heard about the Paris thing, I was like, nah, that's not for me. I will live <laughs> vicariously through my friends who did attend. So it was cool to see you down there. Shout out to our friend Thaddeus, who uh, works on the web team as a communication specialist. Thanks for your help. Uh, and the whole team on being, you know, I, I think the the Twitter account for James Webb, and I think everything has been so awesome, you know, I think when the, the public is really engaged. They blocked the sun account. They blocked that the sun on Twitter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's no, a Webby award really for awesome. social media. I, I know that NASA always wins a bunch of Webby yeah. and social media awards. The team behind that tweet, I think it was three or four folks over at NASA's team. What a great tweet. What a great way to engage the public. I want to say this to end the podcast that it's been a long time. I, you know, with SpaceX, it's its own beast. They have the, you know, global phenomenon. But in terms of the larger space program and NASA uh, and ESA, I don't think I've seen this much interest in a science mission 
since I, you know, in the seven years I've been working in, in space and I, I think people are really excited. I think this was one of those missions that broke through the space bubble. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to people who don't give a damn about space, about web. I know that there are people who watch the live stream who don't wa- usually watch live streams. So I want to say like missions like this, I think the, the ultimate discoveries and the promise of these missions does inspire people. And I hope that NASA continues to do public engagement on that basis. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's, it's also just that there's so many, I mean, again, we can talk in another episode about what it could do, but there's so many one-liners that are absolutely mind-blowing. But I like to tell people, look, we're launching a telescope that's going to look at light that is older than 99% of the entire universe. It's going to look past 99% of all of the time that has ever happened and see the beginnings of everything that ever was. Like the, none of that is hyperbole. So yeah. this is a pretty big project. Yeah. And it's it's such a wonderful compliment because while it's not the telescope that can see the farthest back, that 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 actually goes to Kobe, uh, right. the Cosmic Origins Background Explorer, it will basically be able to see right where Kobe left off. So right. it's going to really provide with Kobe that complete picture all the way back to the Big Bang. It's incredible. And with that manage your anxiety levels and we will have updates from you on the deployment of web and, and its insertion onto l2 it's all happening i want to shout out nasa's website jwst.nasa.gov slash web launch i think that they have a cool utility that you can uh, track they're updating it there's miles and time and, and things in uh the james webb twitter account follow chris at nsf and a uh, supercluster on twitter we will be sharing updates on the deployment. Actually, deployment is technically, are we still calling it a deployment or it's an insertion into L2? Insertion at this point. Yeah. And it, we're about a little more than two months from when things are really going to get start to get exciting again. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you both for being on the uh, show today. And Chris, it, let us know if you're ever going back down to South America. <laughs> oh, will do. <laughs> All right, guys. Later. Yeah, don't forget, space is for everyone, even the parrots. 